The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Discover hope and healing from the other side. Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Listen, they're all around you, close as a thought or a memory. Messages of Hope. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I so love joining with all of you each week. I love your enthusiasm. Those of you who follow my Facebook page, it's so much fun hearing that you enjoy the show as much as I do. And it's wonderful to bring in guests who share in our enthusiasm, kindred spirits who want to explore a greater reality. And I have just such a guest today, Marjorie Woolacott. I'll introduce her in just a minute. But first, I wanted to share my excitement that my new book came out this week week. It's called Droplets of God, and it's the biography of my original mentor in England, Mavis Patilla, the most revered medium in the world. I feel free to say that after writing her story and listening to what others have to say about it. And for those of you who've already read it, the most common thing I've heard already is I couldn't put it down. People are blaming me for not getting sleep, and I'll take that blame. So I'm just thrilled that you all are enjoying it, and I'm just honored to be able to tell Mavis's wonderful story. Even if you're not interested in being a medium, you'll learn so much about the spirit world from this wonderful teacher, Mavis. Droplets of God is the name. Uh, Before we bring in Marjorie, I just wanted to share that yesterday someone brought to my attention an article that came out recently in the New York Times where some hardcore skeptics about the afterlife uh, went on a, um, uh, well, they went to expose who they said were fake mediums. And they did a pretty good job of doing that, I have to say. And there's no doubt that there are some mediums that don't employ the highest integrity uh, and you will get caught if you do that. But the problem I have with the article is that when you're a hardcore skeptic, they don't open their mind to the possibility that mediumship at all is real. And as a medium and and having many friends who are the real deal mediums, I can tell you that while there may be some charlatans, when you know this is real and you tap into those who have crossed the veil, there's just no doubt. There can be evidence that's irrefutable and evidence that no one would ever find on a Facebook page or on Google. And it changes lives. So in a way, I think those kinds of exposés are doing a disservice that 
true mediums do not prey on the grief of others, we want nothing other than to heal the grief. And having been there after the loss of my stepdaughter, I can tell you that a medium who is coming from the highest place and tapping into our loved ones who have crossed, it's life-changing. And I went to do a reading yesterday just after reading that article and feeling bad that that, that article might might steer people away who might have the experience of a real reading and went into this session not knowing who I was going to connect with and actually found this woman had a child who had passed and the connection was so clear and so beautiful and the reading was so healing and all I know is that we mediums just need to be able to look ourselves in the mirror and know that we're coming from the highest place and I want those of you who who have not yet had a reading to know that your heart will tell you if that connection is real or not. I can tell you it is very real. Your loved ones who have passed are still right here. So I'm sorry to have cut into Marjorie's time with that, but I just had to say it. But our discussion today is all about what is real and what is the fundamental nature of reality. Marjorie Willicott is a neuroscientist. She's been a neuroscience professor at the University of Oregon for more than three decades and a meditator for almost four decades. She had no doubt in the past that the brain was a purely physical entity controlled by chemicals and electrical pulses. But when she experimented with meditation for the first time, her entire world changed Marjorie's journey through years of meditation has made her question the reality she built her career upon and has forced her to ask what human consciousness really is. And I love this subject because I speak to those no longer in a physical body. This means they're not using a brain to communicate with me. So Marjorie, come on in and let's talk about what they really are using to communicate with me. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Suzanne. And I simply want to say that I also empathize with you and the people that read articles like you were talking about related to mediumship because, of course, I was on the other side at one point, too, being a skeptic, having never had an experience of real spirituality. And what happened to me was that once I had that experience in meditation, I changed completely 180 degrees around, and I suddenly began to understand what other people had said. So I realized that it sometimes takes the real experience to know what is true. So. That's that's it. I'm so glad you brought that up because in many of my presentations, I share stories, stories of connecting with people across the veil, but nothing will change like that personal experience. And before we go further, everybody, after this show, run out and get Marjorie's book called Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind. Just fantastic. I'm holding it here on my lap. In fact, Marjorie, you gave it to me at a conference for the International Association of Near-Death Studies. What is your work with them? Well, in fact, I'm now the research director for the International Association for Near-Death Studies, IONS, and it's partly related to um, giving talks um, at some of those same um, conferences that you were also giving talks and workshops at, and I realized that I loved doing this type of research and working with others who want to do it, and so they asked me if I would be their research director, and I happily said yes. So now I'm involved with helping to create many of the conferences that happen and find it, say, wonderful way of learning more about near-death studies and spirituality and consciousness. Oh, good. That gives us an opportunity to give a plug for uh, this year's conference is in August in Philadelphia, which is right near where I grew up, and they've asked me to be one of the, the keynote speakers this year, so I hope to see you there. Yes. 
Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, tell us about how it is that a materialist neuroscientist began to meditate. Well, and I think that first I should mention that, you know, I realized that I probably had this sort of thing in my blood growing up because when I was five years old, I remember vividly actually dissecting a gopher that had committed the sin of digging tunnels in our front garden and my mother had killed him with a shovel. Oh, no. And oh, so no. At five years old, I was so curious about the material world that I was actually taking a little kitchen knife and going inside of him and looking to see what I found. Wow. <laughs> so I realized, you know, I entered high school and college also with that same interest in exploring the world, but more specifically the brain, because the brain epitomized the mysteries of the physical universe. So I, I went from there, um, getting my PhD training as a young neuroscientist in rehabilitation medicine, and my career in the um, neuroscience side has been related to actually working with um, young children to older adults, including patients with stroke and Parkinson's disease and cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. And I've written a textbook that's in its fifth edition related to assessing and treating patients, and have worked with National Institutes of Health um, with grants from them for 500000 to a $1 million per grant. And I should say that that's just saying that during the beginning of my career and in my early career, I was at heart a materialist neuroscientist who believed that human awareness was solely the product of the neurons in our brain. And then, of course, what happened was that in 1976, Just a little over 40 years ago, I had an experience in meditation that opened up for me this awareness of a dimension of reality I'd never before experienced. And what happened was I was invited by my sister to a meditation retreat by an Indian meditation master. And though I was skeptical, I was curious, and I decided to attend. And the first morning of that retreat, it was announced that during that meditation session, the Swami was going to be walking around the room and initiating every individual there. And the initiation was described as a spiritual awakening, and it was to happen through the Swami's touch. Now, obviously, the scientist in me was skeptical. But since I was there, I decided to put my skepticism aside for the weekend. And besides, I was curious to see what would happen. So when he reached me, I felt the Swami's thumb and fingers right between my eyes and on the bridge of my nose. I was alert. My eyes were closed, but my senses were otherwise fully engaged. So when I experienced a current of what felt like electricity enter from the Swami's fingers into my body, I had a sense of utter certainty about the event. Mm. It isn't that I knew precisely what was happening. To this day, I can't explain it. But it seemed as if this tiny lightning bolt leapt from his fingers to a point between my eyes and down to the center of my chest. And I could feel the exact point where the energy stopped. I knew it was my heart. Not the physical heart, but parallel to the physical heart and more like a heart that my physical heart had ever been. And that energy that came from my heart began radiating outward, filling my whole being and beyond. It felt like nectar. It felt like pure love flowing through me. Words went through my mind and they had nothing to do with scientific analysis. I'm home. I'm home. My heart is my home. And I think what was most astonishing was what happened afterwards, because without my effort, or my even willing it, I made a 180-degree shift in my habits beginning the morning after I returned to my university position in Virginia. I got up at 5 a.m. spontaneously, and I meditated. And it happened day after day after day, and in fact, it's never ceased. And I did this knowing that just beneath the surface of my awareness simmered this quiet ecstasy. I tapped it once. And I felt it was there waiting for me. 
So it felt like I was awakened to a whole new way of seeing the world, and with that I felt this powerful connection with other people and other things. I'm so... uh I'm listening to this, and from the moment you began talking about seeing that Swami, I was just covered with goosebumps. It's just, this is truth. And what was your reaction, though, to that feeling right there that day after you came out of that meditation? Well, you know what's interesting, Suzanne, is that I still remember very strongly getting on the airplane to go back from the Casco Mountains in New York where he was, um, giving the retreat and going back to Virginia, and I was holding his spiritual autobiography in my hands, and it had a photograph of him on the cover, and I kept saying, who are you, and what have you given me? Because I was just, like, shocked at this new world that had opened up for me. And, I, you know, I should also remember that on the one hand, I often say, well, I don't have any experiences of meeting at all, but I also now remember something that I sort of quarantined in the back of my mind for many years. That night after I came home to my house in Virginia, I remember waking up early in the morning, like maybe at 2 a.m. in the morning, and just looking up in the corner of room at the room, and there was the face of a previous meditation master that had been my teacher's meditation teacher, and he was simply there looking down on me with the most wonderful benevolent look on his face of peace and contentment and silence, like he was giving me this blessing. And I'm thinking, wow. what on earth is that? <laughs> Neuroscientists don't have those experiences. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and of course, for so, years, uh, I didn't share it with anyone because nobody, I felt, would even understand it. Right. Now, I, I always try to listen to what my guest speakers are saying from the viewpoint of the listeners. And I know that so many who are listening now meditate regularly, but haven't had that ecstatic experience. And yours perhaps was induced by whatever this initiation that that Mm -hmm. Swami was able to give you, but lacking that, I mean, what is the mode? How do people, what's the motivation for people to meditate when they don't get those wow moments, those bells and whistles? That's a wonderful question because I think you're right that when a person begins meditating, um, they can have any range of experiences from, um, for example, something that might have been like myself and other people sometimes in their first moment of meditation might even like, like leave their body and have this experience of cosmic awareness. So what I always remind myself about is the experience itself is not the critical issue, but it's how that affects the rest of my day and how I go about my day. And I get up every morning and meditate, and some of my meditations are simply quiet moments where I'm simply resting um, in awareness for a while and watching a few thoughts go by, bring my mind back to the breath, watching more thoughts, bring my mind back to the breath. But what I notice is when I'm exercising those what I would call my neurophysiological muscles of concentration and attention, focusing on the breath, that that affects the rest of my day, that I find that staying in that place of stillness for, say, 30 or 45 minutes in the morning allows me to go through the rest of my day with an equanimity, with a calmness when I'm faced with challenging situations that I wouldn't have otherwise. And to me, that's the most important part of the meditation. An experience like that I had in the beginning is nice, and yet we really want a transformation in the way we interact with the world so we feel stronger and have more peace and contentment. Perfect. I'm so glad you got to share that. Now, your biography says that you, in addition to being director of research for IANS, you're also president of the Academy for the Advancement of Post-Materialist Sciences. We see that term post-materialist quite a bit these days. How do you define that? That's a wonderful question. I think when we talk about post-materialist sciences, what we're meaning is that um, 
for the last probably 200 years or more, most science has been very materialist-oriented, meaning that just as I was trained as a neuroscientist and physicists are trained and chemists are trained in that way, we are saying that the material world is the fundamental um, nature of reality, that um, atoms and molecules, etc., are really the um, foundation of our reality, and that consciousness itself, for example, is purely a product of our material neurons in our brain, and that once the neuron dies, our consciousness is gone, it's obliterated. And so that's what I would call materialist science. And what we're talking about with post-materialist science is that these are a group of scientists that are doing research now in the area of consciousness and physics that are saying that consciousness is not the product solely of neurons in our brain, but consciousness is fundamental to reality. And I think that that's perhaps a key way of looking at it, that we are saying that, yes, the material world is very important and it affects a lot of things, but there's, for example, a two-way communication going between my brain and my higher consciousness, but also this higher fundamental consciousness to my brain. So it works two ways. So I think maybe one way of saying it, too, is that I see consciousness or awareness as this vast and limitless entity that exists beyond time and space. And what our brain is is really a filter or this partial barrier to experiencing that reality. And I think that's exciting with the the work that you're doing as a medium. It's like you are allowing that filter or that partial barrier to be removed in those moments when you are able to communicate with these spirits on the other side, and you then are expanding your consciousness um, in a way that um, many of us aren't able to do in our ordinary um, three-dimensional reality that we live in normally. I love listening to you. (laughs) This just validates the work that I do when I first connected with the spirit all I wanted to know is how is this possible and and it's through that experience that I've come to know that everything that exists arises in consciousness so those who pass from to the other side even though they no longer have a brain also arise from and as that consciousness and you use the term two-way communication and that's exactly what it is yeah. And, you know, one thing I also remember, and I think maybe that first IONS meeting where I met you and heard you speak, I stood up to ask you a question afterwards, and my question was I asked if you meditated. And and I think you replied, of course, I begin my day with it, and that's essential for my mediumship. And that really surprised me because I began to understand the importance of meditation is really to quiet the mind so that that partial barrier can be removed. And in that stillness, then a medium can actually be able to communicate with this broader consciousness the spirits from the other side. And I, for example, as a scientist, can get really much more in touch with the creative potential that is part of the infinite consciousness and therefore tap into that much more readily. Perfect. But Marjorie, what you said earlier was also key in that for all of us connecting across the veil, even if we're not mediums to connect with our own loved ones, that meditation that you and I participate in allows us to train ourselves to focus on one thing to the exclusion of all else going on around us. And it's, it's, there's the spirit world, if you want to call it, that is right here, but we don't notice it because of the filter of the brain. You're right. 
Well, that, and you're also reminding me about um, Jeff O'Driscoll, who you interviewed a few, I think, weeks ago, and I also mm-hmm. heard speak at a previous IONS meeting, was talking about his understanding that when he is focused specifically on a topic or, or on a particular task of taking care of one patient, he actually doesn't have um, the well, the filter is so strong because he has to focus on that task. But when he is, for example, in the hospital but not doing that task, then the spirits can communicate with him because he has that background of strength of, of focus in a certain sense. He can hear that what is going on on the other side. And I think that that's really very important. In fact, can I tell you about one study I did in my own laboratory related to oh, attention please. and focus? Oh, yes. So I'm going to just make a little bit of a step back and say that when I first had those experiences of meditation, I didn't know how to integrate my spiritual life and my scientific life as a neuroscientist. And I would say one sort of things to my colleagues in the laboratory or in the university when I came in, and a whole different set of things to my friends who meditated and in the meditation and hatha yoga classes I taught. And for a while, it made me feel like I was living like a divided life. And I, I had a hard time really integrating these two. And finally, after about 25 years, I decided that I needed to publicly integrate the two halves of my life, and so I decided to do research in the laboratory on meditation. And one of the things that we did was related to precisely what you're talking about. It's like the ability of meditation to improve our concentration and our focus. And this is what we did. We brought in long-term meditators. We also brought in long-term Tai Chi practitioners because Tai Chi is a moving form of meditation. And we compared them to aerobic walkers because we know that bringing more blood to your brain when you do aerobics is really good for your body and your attention. But we didn't know if it was going to be as good as meditation. And then we compared all three groups to sedentary adults, what I would call couch potatoes. (laughs) And what I loved about the research is that we had them sitting at a computer with electrodes, 256 electrodes in an EEG cap over their head so we could measure their brain responses. And we had them do a complex computer game where they had to respond to ever-changing rules on the computer. Whenever a red light came on, they had to press either the left or the right mouse button in front of them according to these changing rules. So they had to have incredible focus on what was happening and where they were in the game. And what we found is that when we measured those event potentials, they're called, the event-related potentials in this EEG cap, the meditators showed potentials that were twice as large as the sedentary adults, and so did the Tai Chi practitioners, which meant that their focus when that red light came on was twice as great as the Mm. sedentary adults. And we found that the aerobic walkers were halfway in between. And what this tells us is that the attentional abilities of the meditators and the Tai Chi practitioners was incredibly large. And it's not just enough to do aerobic walking or um, jogging, but when you add in the mental training of meditation or Tai Chi, you get that extra effect that allows you that perfect concentration. So I was really excited to see that. But I then said, well, can we say anything about the part of the brain that is actually changing when we see that much bigger event-related potential um, when a person is focusing? And we actually found out through a particular analysis called um, uh, event potential analysis that it's the anterior cingulate cortex, which is sort of it's on the surface of the brain toward the front and the side. And this anterior cingulate cortex is the part of our brain that's involved in decision-making and most importantly in the level of our awareness. And what's most important is that it's highly correlated in its size with success in the world, and it's 
a very good predictor of how children resolve conflict. So, for example, conflict resolution at four years of age in a child is highly correlated with their success in later life, like their health, their income, their relationships, their criminality, and the size of the anterior cingulate cortex is modifiable through meditation. So it's telling us that meditation can increase the size of our anterior cingulate cortex, and that is directly related to our decision-making, our conflict resolution, and our ability to focus in life. Wow. I love that. And it, it gives uh, val- validity to this. I have uh, one of my CDs in my mediumship program with Hemisync is called the training ground because I found that meditation was actually a training program for this focus, that you can actually train yourself to focus more. And you're saying that exactly. Exactly. And in fact, I think it's interesting that one of the scientists that I very much admire is Dr. Richie Davidson from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And he has tried to bring meditation into our scientific culture by simply not calling it meditation very much, but calling it mindfulness or mental training. And I think that when we use that word, somehow people then um, don't think that it might be something woo-woo or spiritual, but they understand the real fundamental nature of meditation is a mental training of our focus can improve every part of our life. Wow. I want to talk more about mindfulness and that after the break, but we still have a minute to go here. We're talking with Marjorie Woolacott, and her website is marjoriewoolacott.com. You can find the spelling right there on your screen if you're listening to this online. Her book is called Infinite Awareness. And are you still teaching at the university? I'm not teaching at the university, but I end up teaching in a lot of different conferences and workshops around the world. And on my website, I list what conferences I'll be speaking at in the next six months. Wonderful. Well, how was your work in meditation received by your colleagues when you first started this? Actually, a few of my colleagues came to my first talk at the university about my book, and they loved it. And I think the rest of them said, this is not for me because it's not materialist-oriented, and it sounds a little bit woo-woo. So I think that's always the case, and that's fine. <laughs> I love that. That you know, That's the mentality that we need to have, that there will be some people that that's their viewpoint, and we don't need to change their mind, right? Those who are open to it will have the experience they're supposed to have. Exactly. All right. Well, let's see. We're going to take a break in half a minute here. But when we come back, Margie, I want you to get thinking about this. And those of you come back because I want to ask you how it is that as a neuroscientist and you began to meditate, you became interested in spirituality because it seems to me that you're making a difference between just meditation. and We haven't talked yet about spirituality. So will you talk with that about that with us when we come back? Yes, that sounds perfect. Okay, so once again, we're talking to Marjorie Woolacott. I'll spell it for you now anyway, W-O-O-L-L-A-C-O-T-T. A A lot of double letters there, Marjorie. (laughs) Old English, that's right. (laughs) Yes, and uh, we'll come back and talk a lot more about consciousness, meditation, spirituality. So come on back and join us. Glad you found us. 
This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach around the world, we depend on the generosity of listeners like you. If you enjoy the programming, please make your donation today by going to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Teachable Moment with Rev. Blair Tabor from Unity San Diego, taken from a talk called Sacred Service, The Ultimate Spiritual Growth. Who we are and who we perceive ourselves to be as human beings is just such a small part of who we are as spiritual beings. You remember the phrase that I like, you know, Emily Cady says, God did not make you to be spiritual pygmies, but spiritual giants. You know, and do we live as if we're spiritual giants? No, we don't. We live, we live as if we're you know, weak human beings. You know, we're spiritual giants. We need to live that way in our lives. So we have to let go of the ego. It's a challenge because we spent so much energy and focus on, on our ego on dressing a certain way and talking a certain way and looking a certain way and, and aligning ourselves in certain ways to, to uphold that ego identity. But as we're willing to let that go, let it be permeable to spirit, then what we find is we're connected to that infinite oneness that is God. To find a Unity Church near you, visit unity.org. For over 23 years, Liz Dunn and the team at Celebrate Your Life have been presenting life-changing events with some of the world's leading spiritual teachers. Experience a Celebrate Your Life event for yourself in 2019. Tickets are available now for the International Women's Summit, March 7th to 10th in Phoenix, Arizona, featuring some of the most inspirational speakers in the realm of mind, body, and spirit. Do something for yourself this year. Go to CelebrateYourLife.com and reserve your space today. Sometimes you might feel so alone with your problems, you don't know where to turn. We invite you to call Silent Unity, the 24-7 prayer ministry, where someone is waiting to pray with you every day at any hour. Listen and relax as you hear their beautiful words affirm the highest and best outcome for you and those you love. No matter what's going on in your life, Silent Unity is always standing by. Call today, 816-969-2000. Find the truth within yourself that heals, reveals, guides, and transforms. Tune in to Reverend Galen McDowell every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Central for Truth Transforms. Take a deep dive into the practical aspects of new thought teaching, starting with forgiveness, spiritual healing, prosperity, and more. Reverend McDowell welcomes some amazing guests, and topics can range from reincarnation to the Bible to science. Big plans to join the show here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back. You're listening to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Oh, we are having such a good conversation today with neuroscientist Marjorie Woolacott. She's sharing with us her revelations about the mind's spiritual power. She has spent many years now exploring human consciousness and the existence of a non-physical and infinitely powerful mind. What we're saying here is that 
Our awareness and the mind does not depend on the brain. Imagine that coming from a neuroscientist. Marjorie, you mentioned in your book, the title of which is Infinite Awareness, that the research you did in your laboratory on meditation didn't completely satisfy your dilemma of integrating your spiritual and your scientific worldviews. So you said there that your real question is, is there more to consciousness than just brain activity? Why was that question so important to you? Well, the question was important because my own meditation experiences appeared to go well beyond the normal activation of neurons in the brain. I was experiencing that energy in my heart that I talked about and also energy between my eyes and um, also at the very top of my head. And I realized later when I actually began studying a little bit more about spirituality, these are called actually chakras in yogic texts. And I'd never even heard of these things before. And so what it did is it led me to examine the research that people were really um, doing now to explore, to explore some of these phenomena, things like, for example, energy healing and near-death experiences and things like reincarnation. And what I thought was so interesting to myself is that when I finally carefully looked at the medical scientific database, it's actually called PubMed, that you can find out on the web to see if there were scientific studies on such things as near-death experiences, I was surprised to find carefully designed and controlled studies by scientists at major universities and medical centers published in peer-reviewed journals. And yet, the interesting thing is, as a neuroscientist, I hadn't known about them. And you might ask why, and I would say it's because, like most of my colleagues, I had never bothered to look because I didn't believe they existed. <laughs> oh, see, that's the key. Yeah. Yes. So and how did so you begin to explore this? I wanted to maybe just tell you a little bit about um, one set of those studies, and that was a near-death experience studies. Okay. So what I realized is that when I looked at those studies, I was surprised to see that they were actually very carefully done. And when I say that, what I'm meaning is that they were actually done with a specific type of design. They were called a prospective study. And this is a very important thing to realize when you're looking at scientific studies. In a prospective study on near-death experiences, what they do is they bring everybody into the study that has cardiac arrest, in this case, in a hospital um, network. And those that survive, that they interview, and they find out, did they have a near-death experience? And if so, actually, what was the person's experience? And they correlate that with the EEG activity. Was it flat, or was there some activity? Was their heart truly stopped, and for how many minutes? So that they get very clear scientific data that correlate that near-death experience with what was going on in their body. And I want to mention one particular study that was actually published in the Lancet Medical Journal by a man named Dr. Pim Van Lommel. And I say the Lancet Medical Journal because this is currently ranked number two out of 150 journals in medicine, which means that he is published in a highly credible journal talking about these um, near-death experiences. And in this particular prospective study that I was telling you about, he found out that 12% of the cardiac arrest patients had conscious near-death experiences, even though their body, including their brain, had been judged by medical professionals to be non-functioning, that is, dead. And 25% of those patients having the experiences indicated they've been able to watch and could recall events that happened around them during their cardiac arrest. So in other words, people were essentially clinical de- clinically dead, no heartbeat, no brain activity, but conscious at the same time. And I think that is the amazing thing for me because we're saying there is 
no brain activity, and yet the person, in fact, typically has often left their body. Their awareness is hovering above their body, watching the resuscitation team revive them. And afterwards, they tell the resuscitation team exactly what they saw, and the resuscitation team, of course, is shocked and doesn't know what to say. I love and these stories. That's why I love going to IANS conferences. He says during this particular study he was carrying out, he said a nurse reported she'd removed a patient's dentures and placed them in a special drawer of a trolley. And during the one and a half hours of the resuscitation, the patient was in a coma, totally unconscious. But one week later, he returned to the ward, and after seeing the nurse, he said, this nurse knows where my dentures are. And he described how she took them out of his mouth and put them in the crash trolley. And he even described the trolley and the sliding door underneath it. And he had seen himself lying on the bed, and he had seen the nurses and the doctors busy with the CPR. So to me, that says, wait a minute, consciousness can't be solely the product of neurons in the brain when you have an experience like that. Um, in a near-death study that's carefully controlled. I love these kind of stories. Oh, I could listen to them all day. <laughs> so uh, what, what was the uh, size of that study group? Do you remember? Well, I know that um, this, the size of the whole group was, was much, much larger than the number of people that actually survived, but I think there were like 386 people approximately that they actually interviewed and had as part of the study. Um, a lot more were part of it, but again, if the people didn't survive, then of course they could not <laughs> give any, any data. So. Well, if I, I could talk to them and get it. <laughs> That's right, you could. That's a good point. We should have a combination of study like that. That would be great. <laughs> So what was your your personal conclusion from the research you did on near-death experiences? You know, my personal conclusion was that when I looked at what the skeptics' concerns were, and then I looked at the um, actual data that is, had been given by the medical doctors that were doing these studies, I had to side with the medical doctors. And I'll give you a reason. I'll just give you some of the, the data. I mean, what the skeptics will often say is that, well, those um, – Near-death experiences may have been due to abnormal physiological states caused by low oxygen in the brain. So what's really happening is that neurotransmitters are being released in excess. Um, you're getting endorphins, and therefore you're getting the equivalent of a runner's high. That's why they have beautiful experiences, and they're just hallucinations, doing to, really due to abnormal activity. But what these scientists say, whether it's Tim Van Lommel or Dr. Samparnia, another researcher in the area, they say it's not that there's lower brain activity, there is no brain activity. Mm. And for somebody to be lucidly aware with no brain activity should not be possible, according to our current theories of neuroscience, our, our science, our materialist theories. So to me, that is really the evidence that convinced me when I looked at these papers carefully. And I think one of the challenges that I sometimes give to some of my neuroscience friends that are skeptical is I say, please go back and look at these carefully designed studies and see what you then conclude after you have read carefully what the researchers have actually found. It makes me think, Marjorie, that perhaps some who say, no, I'm not going to read that, maybe there's just something in the back of their mind that thinks if I do read that, I might have to change my mind, my worldview. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes people ask me, why are scientists, or why do scientists appear so almost terrified about even looking at this research? And I sometimes imagine, I still remember, I was um, at one time married to a materialist scientist, that, but I had started meditating, and I asked him to go to a meditation program with me, and he looked at me with horror in his eyes, and I thought he was afraid he might catch this awful <laughs> virus of meditation. And so 
I sometimes wonder if people are afraid that they might lose their scientific credibility and their stature and their own belief system, and that would make it difficult for them to function in the um, regular traditional scientific world. So it's one of those difficult things. I'm hoping that eventually science will begin to expand its worldview so people don't feel it's an either-or phenomenon. Well, there's, that raises a question. Because I'm totally immersed in this world and I interact so much with people who are open to it, just like our listeners, yeah. I tend to feel that that we are coming around, that more people are becoming open to it. Is that reality? You know, I think they are. And when I say that, my reasoning is that when I look at the general population and many of my friends, and I talk to them about um, meditation, near-death experiences, um, mediumship or reincarnation, many more of them are really intrigued by it. Um, If they don't know a lot of the research, they still um, have a real sense that this could be true. And it's more the very traditional scientists that are at the head of our national government agencies and also the editors of some of the major scientific publications that are still in this previous mode of believing only in materialist science. So I'm hoping, in fact, with that new academy for the advancement of post-materialist sciences that the members who are scientists in that academy will actually try to work with young scientists to help them actually foster research looking at the true fundamental nature of consciousness so that we can have um, perhaps more research that will help others actually understand this is a reality. And for those of you just joining us, we're talking to Marjorie Woolacott, a neuroscientist who studies consciousness and who truly believes that consciousness is fundamental and that the brain does not create consciousness. Why this is so important to me as a medium and should be to all of you listening, it means that when the brain dies, we don't die. Who are we really? We are expressions of consciousness. This is the whole point, that if our awareness, our experience of being is our fundamental nature and it is not dependent on the brain, then we continue existing and being aware and growing and learning and loving. So Marjorie, tell me about a woman you interviewed. I know that I read this in your book who was an atheist, a doctor who had a near-death experience that transformed her life. Yes, this is actually um, Dr. Bettina Payton. And in fact, I met her at a meditation retreat that we were both um, attending and I was speaking at. And I was telling her I was just starting this chapter in my book on near-death experiences. And she said, oh, I had one. And I thought, oh, wonderful. And so after the retreat was over with, I had her tell me the experience, which I thought was incredibly powerful. So here's the story. She was an MD, an avowed atheist, and she had this near-death experience when she was giving birth to her third child. And she went into cardiac arrest as the doctors were doing the cesarean section that was needed for the healthy birth of the child. Now, interestingly, she was under anesthesia with her eyes taped shut to protect the corneas when she suddenly became wide awake and she heard the anesthesiologist say, her blood pressure is plummeting fast. And at that point, she said she became aware of a strange stillness spreading through her chest and she realized that something was missing and it was her heartbeat. And she said at the same time, her vision opened, and she discovered she could see into the room. 
And at that moment, the cardiac monitor then registered that lack of a heartbeat with loud beeps, and she saw the anesthesiologist slam his hand into a large red button on the wall because he was calling a code that was going to bring in the emergency resuscitation team. And she says at that point, she felt she was about to die. And she said that in her inner vision, a vast darkness expanded behind her in the backmost boundaries of her mind. And she felt herself leaning backwards and falling and gliding downward in this graceful backward arc into the unknown. Mm. Mm. And she said the darkness was vividly black with sparkles of light. And she felt this pervasive presence in the light, this pulsating power. She said she was completely happy and enveloped in peace. But then she heard these words, you must live, more like a thunder than as a voice. And she said suddenly she was funneling downward through the darkness and her consciousness was back in the operating room. And just at that moment, she observed the members of the code team burst through the double swinging doors to see their colleague's lifeless body on the table. And she says she then watched as a senior surgeon entered the room, reached into her blood-filled abdomen, found the aorta, wrapped his fingers around it and clamped it shut so that her bleeding would stop and her heart could begin again. And she says, just a few minutes later, a nurse leaned over and whispered in her ear that her baby had survived and she had a beautiful young daughter. Mm. And she said when she opened her eyes in the recovery room, she was surrounded by her husband, also a doctor, and the team of doctors and nurses. And she still had a trachea tube in her throat, so she couldn't speak, but she motioned to them not to speak, and she asked for something to write with. She motioned with her hand, to give, and they gave her a napkin to write on, and she wrote this on the napkin. She said, I know... My heart stopped. I know my uterus is out because she had a hysterectomy, and I know I have a baby girl. And she said later she had conversations with the personnel in the delivery room verifying every single thing she had experienced under anesthesia, with cardiac arrest, with her eyes taped shut. And I simply say if that's the case, how could the brain possibly be the sole source of our conscious experience? And also, if these highly cogent and these completely verified accounts are accurate, I think we need a new scientific framework to take these experiences into account. And then I think if that were the case, I think people could more readily be curious and open about, for example, mediumship and near-death experiences and cases suggestive of reincarnation. Absolutely. I love that you're on, you're on the forefront of this and trying to get these experiments to happen more often. It's awesome. Wow. So, tell us about reincarnation. We don't talk about that too much on this show because I don't have the personal experience of talking to too many souls that talk about it, probably because they know <laughs> I want evidence. But how, how do you do scientific studies on reincarnation? Well, and that's an interesting question. I think that I should say that until I began doing work in this area, in fact, writing that book, Infinite Awareness, I didn't even really think that reincarnation had any valid research about it. And then what happened is that I went to visit the team at the University of Virginia headed by Ed Kelly and others. And in the University of Virginia, Dr. Ian Stevenson had been doing research on reincarnation for many, many years, probably for at least 30 or 40 years before he retired and then eventually passed away. And he was a psychiatrist 
trained extensively in medical studies, but he was also curious about the development of children's personalities because children come into this world with very different personalities, and he was trying to understand whether there could be other contributions besides just the genetics and the family that they were born into. And so he um, was actually given a grant to study cases suggestive of reincarnation in many countries of the world. And he actually, over the years, collected 2,500 cases suggestive of reincarnation on six different continents. And what I appreciated when I actually began reading his case studies that are published in very reputable journals, including like the Journal of Anthropological Research, that he used careful interview techniques like those that are used in the legal system, where he Mm. only interviews firsthand witnesses. And he always interviews the child's family before they contact anyone the child might have mentioned from a supposed previous life. And he studied birth records and newspaper reports. And then he carefully documented the number of items the child remembered and found out if they were accurate. So when seeing that, I thought, well, this is not just anecdotal evidence. This is very carefully studied research um, with 2,500 cases. And I also noted that the American Medical Association, the AMA, actually did a review of one of Stevenson's books, and they wrote, in regard to reincarnation, he has painstakingly and unemotionally collected a detailed series of cases in which the evidence is difficult to explain on any other grounds. And when I hear this, I mean, these are typically materialist doctors that are in the American Medical Association. And for the reviewer to say that about Stevenson's work tells me that this is really legitimate work and we need to at least be curious about whether this might be possible. I'm definitely curious, especially because in many of those cases, the person had a birthmark where there was an indication of how they were wounded in a past life. And I've had my own spirit guide, Marjorie, tell me who I was in a past life and how that person passed. And and when Ty and I went online to look up details about this person, found out about a wound that I actually have a birthmark that matches. So I'm fascinated by this, but I don't spend a lot of time on it. I love that you've done the research yourself. Wow. Well, are you willing to say anything more about that right now or shall I go on? No, that? I want to talk more about consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I will simply tell you that, in fact, I have, of course, 35% of the cases that Dr. Ian Stevenson and Dr. Antonia Mills and others have actually looked at have those birthmarks related to the way the person died, which is unbelievable. I still remember that when I heard 35%, I'm going, I'm a neuroscientist and I study genetics and we don't have this as part of our actual understanding of the genetic transfer of information from parents to children, that there could be something additional that could actually allow this to happen. And it made me think, if this is true, and having read the data, I really believe it is true, we have to expand our theories on genetic transformation of information and there must be something more than just the genes that come from your parents. So I think that's fascinating. It's mind-boggling how much we, the more you know, the more you don't know, right? Exactly, oh, right. gosh. Well, how do you view the nature of consciousness now after doing all this research? Well, you know, I think that I now believe that it is much more 
complex than we originally thought. And I just want to go back, in fact, to the cases suggestive of reincarnation because I know that there are still unanswered questions. And I'll just give you one that you are probably aware of as a medium as well. And that is that if we believe that someone then has their spirit um, now moving over to the other side and we can contact that spirit um, in the next, you know, maybe 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years after they've passed, and there is also reincarnation. People ask, well, how can someone be possibly reincarnated in a new body but still on the other side to answer our questions? And I don't have a good answer to that, but I suppose one hypothesis one could have if I'm a scientist asking these questions is that perhaps some portion of the spirit stays on the other side and some portion of the spirit reincarnates. I have You've no idea, it, Marjorie. but that's one Th- That's it. That's it. Because my uh, guides have explained this to me re- we get this question all the time, and so I have gone into meditation in a channeling state to ask them this. And it's that we humans think in all-or-nothing form, but we as humans are not – we as spirit are not just the physical form, is exactly what your research is showing. If we arise from consciousness, then there is an aspect of that consciousness that can always be accessed. And it is conscious and sentient and interactive. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah. Right, and so I think that those would be wonderful things if there were a way of actually doing research um, in a really nice, credible way. We might be able to actually, through mediumship research and other sorts of um, research and reincarnation, begin to actually ferret some of that out. That would be exciting. But now your question really was also about um, my own new uh, understanding of consciousness, and I think one other thing I want to add is that I believe that when a person actually um, meditates, for example, or when you go into your um, trances as a medium, in those moments, I think what is happening is that we are quieting the mind down so that it can be very, very still. So all those thoughts in different parts of the brain are actually now subdued, and our brain activity is very, very low. And what that does is it allows then those filters in the brain to actually um, become less, what would we say, more permeable, I guess, is less opaque, more permeable, so that we can actually receive this infinite consciousness. And I think that's important for all of us to realize that much of our mental activity gets in the way of a higher consciousness. And the more we can learn to quiet our minds, the better. And in fact, there's some beautiful research right now on meditation that shows that in highly advanced meditators that are asked to basically have thought-free awareness during their meditation, that EEG activity goes um, way, way down across all the areas of the brain and all the frequencies, and that seems to be directly correlated with the experience they have of sort of an expanded mystical awareness in meditation. That's some um, work by, I believe it's um, Theo Regensburg, um, Theo Hinterberger, excuse me, and his colleagues in Germany. That's fascinating, and that completely aligns with my experience. Wow. So we're getting to the end of the program, doggone it. <laughs> but what do you share with us? What do you, how do you feel that this broader understanding of the nature of consciousness can ultimately affect our society if more people are introduced to it and embrace it, that consciousness survives the death of the physical body, that it is not dependent on the brain? And I think that if we really could embrace this as a society, I think it would shift our consciousness from seeing ourselves as individuals who are caught up 
off from everyone and everything and who never have enough of anything to a profound awareness of our interconnection with the world and all the beings who live in it. And I think in this shift, we will begin to reconsider what true abundance and health are and that they're based on the inner sense of abundance and well-being. And I really think that we'll recognize that living in a harmonious and an interconnected way will bring what I would call true wealth to our body, our mind, and our spirits. And we'll see our brothers and our sisters and the planet as a part of us, as this whole that's constantly nourishing us and that we can also nourish in turn. I think to me that's the biggest lesson for me is really seeing that I am a part of this beautiful interconnected whole and that we all nourish each other. We receive and we give in this beautiful nourishing way. You have such a beautiful way of putting that. And playing devil's advocate, I hear some people saying, yeah, that's nice, but that's not going to pay my bills. And that's where we have to have this dual (laughs) point of view of being both human with the brain and the larger aspect of consciousness. Would you agree? Oh, I absolutely agree. And I love, in fact, when Sanaya often talks about our spirit self and then our human self, and we have to realize that when we are on this earth, we can really um, listen to both of them um, at different moments in our day because each one is giving us important information about the, doing the different and my interconnection with my brothers. So I think that it's wonderful that we have both to help us move through life. Yeah. So what you've shown us, Marjorie, is that we can still see each other as separate beings but yet at a, a level of consciousness, the part of us that exists after the physical death of the brain and the body, we are all connected and that which connects us is consciousness. Yes, and that we are all consciousness. I keep remembering that we're all made of exactly the same stuff. So um, it's hard for me then to think of myself as better or worse than other people because we come from the same origin. We have the same essence, which is this beautiful light consciousness and love. Yeah. Oh, I wish we had more time to talk. So consciousness, though, is it stuff or is it an energy or is it essence? You have 20 seconds to answer that question. (laughs) It is all of those things. Yes. (laughs) I think it's our true essence. And I believe it is an, an infinite energy that we all can partake of and we're all part of. Perfect. And that, my friends, is oneness. Marjorie, thank you so much for sharing your your wisdom with us. You've been an awesome guest, and I know you can just feel the love from everybody listening. Marjorie Woolacott, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network. 
and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.